This episode is brought to you by Avalanche and Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Enjoy. We are extraordinarily early, in my opinion, in all of these things, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. The definition of money has really changed. everyone i have been looking forward to this episode for a couple months now uh it's gonna be a really special one uh we're here with bill ty and as always co-hosted by my good friend santiago roel santos um it was actually kind of tough to come up with an intro i will admit bill uh i was looking at your background i had about six pages of notes that could have been an intro um but really like just at a high level really, really deep into the semiconductor space, helped kick off that industry, went over to, I think, IVP in the early 90s, mid 90s, did a lot of internet investing as the kind of first wave of the internet was getting created. Uh, some pretty massive early checks into companies uh, in the 2000s. For, I think first angel check into Zoom, if I have that correctly. So correct. anyways, man, I, I feel like I could do the intro for half this show, but really excited. And uh, yeah, welcome to uh, Empire. Welcome to Blockworks, my friend. Thank you. Excited to be here. Likewise, excited to have you here. So I think, Bill, we, we, we actually want to start with frameworks. Um, you have all of these frameworks that I just absolutely love. Like one is uh, technology as a series of waves, right? Like you go electrons, then, then hardware, then internet, which brought communication online, then user interfaces. And then this data science wave is the fifth one. You have another one, like a narrative that you talk about, the, the virtualization of financial assets. You have another thing that I really like, decreasing frictions, increases GDP. So I think I'd love to just start like, what is your general framework for how you view the world right now? And how you view, like how quickly everything seems like it's happening? Well, I'll start with that last piece, which, um, you know, I, I think I've been in this tech business now for three decades. And the uh, thing that I've learned over and over and over is that uh, technology basically lowers the friction to interesting use cases and makes them highly replicable and highly scalable if you're in the right things. You know, so you got to kind of pick the right trend, apply that technology, and then you can get get businesses that grow very quickly if it's done right. And as I look back, uh, some of the other frameworks you mentioned, um, I got my start as a, uh, a computer chip designer. And that era was really about lowering the friction to applications of things that were created by moving electrons around. And most of the people on this podcast will not be old enough to remember vacuum tubes. But it used to be, you know, to fix a TV, you would literally open up the back, pull out these things that look like little light bulbs with pins on the bottom of them and take them to the drugstore to plug them into these like things to see what kind of a tube it was and find a replacement. And then once you lowered the friction to that by jamming millions and millions of those tubes, hundreds of millions now of those tubes onto something the size of your fingernail it, it, in silicon. It reduced the friction to creating all kinds of things like transistor radios and you know, the iPhone that you have today. So the, uh, uh, those general tenets of lower friction, make them replicable, make them highly scalable, apply to both hardware and software. And so I think as I started in that space of designing chips, there was a natural, which was kind of, I'd say, the first wave of modern technology as we know it, you know, aligned with kind of venture capital investing too. And uh, that naturally provided a, a, a path 
to a next wave of things that were built with those pieces of silicon, whether they were PCs or add-in cards or computer hardware or communications gear. So that was kind of the second wave of investability, so to speak. And once all that stuff existed, um, you could basically rip out the infrastructure of all the phone systems, telephone networks, and replace them with digital gear. So we went through sort of a digitization of the phone networks um, that then allowed applications to be built on top. And that was uh, so kind of wave one was silicon, wave two was boxes, wave three was networks. And then wave four was putting an interface on those networks to move the ones and zeros around. And, you know, you can think of things like Google or Facebook or all the things we touch today. They're really just a bunch of ones and zeros coming in and out of the screen. And uh, that was quite a big wave of usability. And then to figure out what to build and how to measure and how to increase engagement, um, the field of data science uh, exploded, which was kind of, you know, figuring out the path and the the reverberations of the usage of those ones and zeros. And, and crypto to me is also uh, sort of a derivative of that, of that field. It's a form of the ones and zeros where the engagement with the user is encapsulated in a bunch of you know, bits that you track in, in a system. So electrons, boxes, networks, interfaces, data science, including crypto. Those are kind of the, uh, I think, where we've been and where we are now. I am curious of this analogy that you use about waves and how you um, translate that to where we are in crypto. You've been around for, for a while. I think your super earliest check into Dapper Labs uh, at a time where NFTs were sort of coming off of this hype phase of crypto kitties and people realizing that the network where Ethereum was at the moment wasn't ready for um, these sort of mainstream use cases. It was very much in the infrastructure phase, maybe what was in the early 90s or even 80s of the internet. I am curious um, if there are certain analogies that you look back in how the internet evolved and where crypto is today and where are we in these sort of sequential waves of innovation uh, in crypto? Yeah, sure. There's um, So if you think about the period around the internet or pre-internet communications networks in the late 80s and early 90s. There were many private networks like AOL and CompuServe and Prodigy and you know groups of people that would subscribe to a, a very specific backbone where they could send messages back and forth. Um, and it wasn't until there were sort of open scalable, open standards with scalable implementations like TCPIP um, that uh, allowed multiple different networks to interoperate. And while there were the branded communication systems I, I talked about, there were also technology underpinnings in different network architectures like IBM's Token Ring, Novell's NetWare, Microsoft Land Manager, Unix Networks. Novell Networks, they, they were all different, and they didn't interoperate until a company called Cisco Systems came up with a multi-protocol router, which allowed packets, message packets, email packets coming in from, say, Unix. The headers and footers would be stripped off, the message content kept, and repackaged in something else to be sent along to a Novell Network or something else. So... So Cisco got to be a great big company by providing this interoperability layer. Once those kinds of things happened, then uh, it was more 
probable to have scale. Um, if somebody invested in things, the natural gravity of the winning solutions could take hold. So I think we're, we're at a hardware layer. That's kind of where, where we are today with the different layer one protocols that don't yet interoperate but provide a platform for different things that are not yet interoperable. And then I think, uh, as I think about the evolution of those networks, eventually uh, in the internet world, TCPIP um, and the general internet got to a scale and a cost structure where it was just cheaper and easier to develop on it, even though it wasn't the cleanest, easiest uh, architecture. And so I think we're kind of in that phase now where there's many different things that are trying to pop up, networks competing to get scale usage, also competing on interface to, to make things lower friction. You know, Bitcoin kind of won on scale. Um, Ethereum kind of won on a better interface. At the time that I funded Dapper, um, it was pretty clear that uh, the underlying infrastructure supporting Ethereum was not yet robust enough to superscale. I mean, Dapper's first uh, instances with CryptoKitties collapsed the Ethereum network several times. But, uh, but it was also clear that uh, they were in the, what I call the vortex of information, meaning that uh, when I fund these companies, I often will push people to just get, you know, stick their hands in the moving water. Like I, I always tell people, you got to move to the fast moving water in different markets to learn. And once you put your hand out there and are touching the market and get feedback, you'll know where to steer yourself. And until you have something working, where customers are telling you what they want, you're going to be totally inefficient in the application of resources. You're just kind of throwing stuff up on the wall, hoping that you get something to stick. But once you can literally make a list, well, 50 customers asked for this, 20 asked for this, three asked for this. Let's do the one that asked. They came up 50 times. Then you become extraordinarily efficient at using your resources and you have a shot to get directional. So I think uh, we're kind of, we're, we're probably past that phase now because I think people, there's enough feedback loop occurring now in the various chains that people know what they want and different chains are taking on uh, kind of subtle variants that service market needs very well for what they do. Bill, you mentioned TCP IP and it really does, like, it really does feel like we're trying to rebuild uh, or trying to build basically TCP IP uh, or SMTP, or maybe the better analogy is something like iOS versus Android, right? Maybe ETH is iOS, and so I'm making this up, but Solana is Android, or ETH is, uh, you know, SMTP, and Solana is HTTP, or whatever it may be. Do you think that's a fair analogy, saying, look, what we're trying to do is build all these protocols? Eventually, the apps, right, the Zooms and the LinkedIn's and the Twitters of the world will get built on top of the Ethereum's of the world, but right now we're the layer ones are basically these different protocols. Is that a fair analogy? I think that's a great analogy. And I think, uh, you know, I think because we're at this sort of, uh, you know, kind of Cambrian explosion state of many different flavors, it, it reminds me a little bit of the beginning of the microcomputer business as well. People obviously know Apple and Windows PCs really well now because those became the main ecosystems, or as you said, in the phone system, iOS and Android. In the beginning of the computer business, of the microcomputer business, um, there were many 
older non-microcomputers, more mini-computers and mainframes that had very robust ecosystems, like digital equipment with the deck, you know, various VMS on VAX and VMS or IBM stuff, uh, not the non-PC things. Those kind of represent banks today, uh, kind of, you know, traditional older proprietary systems to move assets around. And then as the PC and microcomputer wave started, there were many, many, many different competitors that people don't even remember anymore, like the Commodore Amiga or the Victor Pet or Eagle Computer or, uh, God, there were like there were dozens of hardware boxes for the home. Mark Te Texas Instruments had one. Atari had one. But, you know, there, there were many of these things that were hardware and software all in one box trying to develop their own applications. And it took a couple of those to break out. One in sort of a let's focus on usability, which was Apple, and a somewhat not not completely closed system, but kind of closed system uh, to control quality. Again, you know, Apple, and then there was the Wild West, you know, kind of PC. Every hardware manufacturer in Taiwan had one, and there were thousands of variants of PCs until that industry sort of formed and gelled. And uh, I think we're kind of in that phase where. Uh, it's, you know, it's a little bit messy because there's too many choices and there, there are some economies of scale, but not that much on the newer chains. But eventually, I think the market will speak and the better chains with more functionality and lower friction to use will either evolve to great volume or not. And it, you know, does feel like, you know, Ethereum ain't going away. You know, I think they captured the hearts and minds of the users and mm -hmm. they're, I think trying to fix the innards so that there's scalability and a combination of uh, good developer platform that allows a lot of things to happen, but th the ability for the thing not to go down. Uh, Flow, which came out of Dapper, you know, when Dapper launched CryptoKitties, this, you know, the network kept going down on Ethereum. So they literally wrote down what they believed to be all the cho choke points and made a slightly, you know, some variations to the, their implementation to create the flow blockchain, which is really, really good for what they do. So it's a little bit like kind of an Apple variant of easy to use, it's beautiful, it's smooth, it doesn't go down for what they do, where the Ethereum kind of looks like the PC market for, for NFTs today. Uh, but uh, I think, you know, the market will eventually sort, it, sort itself out. Putting on your investor hat uh, and like diving deeper into the crypto investment side of things, Bill. And at some point, honestly, I'd just love to hear your hear your story about how you got into crypto. But uh, when you think about investing in this in this kind of stuff, are you looking at like is there one is there one thing that you look at? Like, do you look at like the developer community? Do you look at the more like user community? Are you looking at mainly like how good the the layer one is, like ETH versus Solana versus Avalanche, or are you like? look, all the L1s are pretty good. We've kind of established, a, they hit their threshold of how good they need to be. They're all good enough. And now I'm really looking at the apps getting built on top. You, you hit all of the parameters. Everything you mentioned is on kind of the list of what, what I look at. I'd say they, they shift in kind of relative uh, weighting in, you know, if there were an algorithm to pick these things out. But I think I'd weight them more and more towards... Um, not in this word, developer community, user community, and application. Because I think the application ultimately will determine the size of market. And 
it takes the same amount of time to address kind of modestly sized markets as big markets. So you always trend as an investor to try to hit the things that will become pervasive if they work. So the more foundational, kind of the better in the face, in the absence of other good solutions. And I'd say the unless you have the developer community, you can't evolve. So you, you that's a requirement. Uh, but the user community matters a ton. You know, it's tied a little bit to the market size. And I think, uh, again, trying to get into the vortex of information where there's a lot of users trying to get something to happen and where you can get onto a, a cycle of learning that's very quick in big markets. That's where I think that's where you make big hits as an investor. I think the big thing that everyone in crypto is trying to figure out right now, Bill, is do like what, what kind of world do we live in, in terms of how many chains do we really have? And like, if you look at, uh, I'm going to try to tie back some analogies here. Like if you look at, um, uh, like the early days of the internet, like there's only one email protocol, right? Like SMTP, they won, right? Like all emails move, move on top of SMTP. Uh, and so you could make the argument that like each different protocol will have a different use case. Maybe there's like the HTTP protocol does this, like SMTP does this. And that's like ETH ends up doing this and Solana ends up doing this. Uh, or you can make another argument, like it's really just about user preferences and developer preferences. And that's more like the iOS versus the Android argument. Like they really do mainly the same thing, but it's kind of just about how much freedom you want and things like that. And then you mm. might have a two chain world. Um, or maybe it's more like cloud infrastructure. It's like AWS and Azure and uh, you know Google Cloud where there's like 15 of these things. And really it's just about like, who's the cheapest and who's the fastest. And we have 15 different chains. So like, how do you think about what this multi-chain future might look like five, 10 years out? I think the very nature of all of these blockchains, because they are digital and allow some level of wrapping an asset for, you know, other things, uh, like you're talking about in the email system, the the ability to basically you know move eventually you were able to move AOL messages to internet messages through gateways that just translated you know so I think that's going to happen at some point right where there's a couple of winners where there's main ecosystems but people prefer to transact on another chain uh, so to speak or pay their fee on another thing and you can kind of you know wrap and unwrap things on different in different markets. And, and I'll also say that one big element that matters is marketplaces of people, right? So I think blockchain, its very nature unlocks community and marketplaces where it's groups of people transacting that have sort of a semi-religious belief or technical belief that where they are transacting is slightly better than someone else's thing, whether that is or not, it's all subjective, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the, uh, in the end, you have to go to where the marketplaces are, right? So it's whoever accumulates the most users, um, even if the technology is not as good um, and good subjective, of course, but you know, not as fast, not as fluid, whatever, if people stay there, that's what matters. So, so I think, and you're never gonna get one religion Right, I think you're always going to have a couple different viewpoints on what's right, and I think those will be the main clusters, and then there will be interoperability gateways to allow those that want to traverse both. Just like you know, Mac and Windows, 
there were programs like Parallels that, or whatever they were that allowed you to run different things on the same, or people would basically copy a program for two variations like they do Android and, and iOS today on the phone. You know, so, uh, so I think it's always going to be somewhat some level of heterogeneous implementation, but economically a couple of clusters where scale allowed low cost. That's, I think, what will happen. It's kind of like having a, like Microsoft apps like Word and PowerPoint being able to run on your Mac is almost like having Aave, uh, like an Ethereum app, being able to run on Solana or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm curious, Bill, this sort of like how you got in, first involved in crypto and what that journey was like. You know, I think a lot of our viewers today are, you know, might say, hey, I, I sort of missed the boat on Bitcoin, missed the boat on Ethereum, perhaps missed the boat on Solana. And, and are a bit frustrated by that. Um, and it goes back to this idea of where we are in these sort of waves. I still think we're quite early, super early um, across a number of dimensions. If you look at a number of users, applications and stuff like that. But I, I am curious, like, how, how did you first get involved and, and what was kind of your first, the way you, you got excited and then expressed that thesis? Was it investing in something like Bitcoin or Ethereum or just made super early stage bets? Yeah. So, so first, I want to echo what you're saying and say, and say that we are extraordinarily early, in my opinion, in all of these things, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, you know, early is a relative phrase and all that. And you look at a Bitcoin and I don't know what it is today, 40 or 50K a coin or something. And you say, oh, my God, that must be really high. Mm -hmm. But within the whole context of the world monetary system, the total amount of Bitcoin is pretty small. And I forgot the exact calculation, but I think if you just replaced just the asset value of gold um, with Bitcoin, just I think it's like 10% of the asset value of gold would get pegged Bitcoin around 100K. I mean, it could be plus or minus 50%, but it's probably somewhere in that neighborhood. So if it replaces, you know, all of gold, then, you know, it could be a million dollars a coin. And that's just gold, which is very small relative to the world's monetary system. So mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, we've all seen the crazy and they may not be crazy. We've all seen the estimates ranging from, you know, 50K to 2 million a coin from reasonably thoughtful financial people and i wouldn't dismiss those you know so i'd say right yeah i think we're still quite early and i'd say the my involvement really was an extension of the same thing that i was looking at in the 80s <laughs> which was uh distributed computing so if you look at the trend line from mainframes to mini computers like the old Sun Microsystems, Daisy Mentor Valid workstations, Next Computer System workstations, to uh, you know, so mainframes, mini computers like DEC, workstations like Sun, PCs, and microcomputers to now this, the phone. You know, so that's basically taking computational power and revving it up, but shrinking it down at every stage until it hit the realm of of peer-to-peer -peer networks. And so in 1999-2000, I was experimenting. Uh, I had a fun little company that I put together that uh, in today's terminology, you could say tokenized um, video. And I had this wonderful group of advisors that included Philip Rosedale that started Second Life. 
and Linus Torvalds, who invented Linux, who had been an employee in one of my companies in 1995. And uh, he was he wrote compilers for a company called Transmeta for us. And um, uh, I did a little bit of experimentation with peer-to-peer in the early 2000s that, that expressed itself ultimately in a company called Avenue, A-V-V-E-N-U, that created the functional equivalent of what we would know today as iCloud. But it was acquired by Nokia. It was funded by Motorola, launched with the Palm Trio, and acquired by Nokia to be their iCloud for web phones in 2006. So it was kind Mm -hmm. of like iCloud, but then the iPhone came out and crushed it. (laughs) So anyway, but through that period... Um, I really got to understand peer-to-peer networks be- because yeah, iCloud functions like that, right? It kind of you've got the ability to access anything from anywhere in kind of a virtual cloud infrastructure. And uh, um, during that period, one of our uh, one of our advisors, who's a good snowboarding buddy of mine, Philip Rosedale, started Second Life. And Second Life, when it first launched was just uh, a way to create a digital version of yourself. You could show up as you're kind of looking like yourself. You could show up as a furry. You could look like anything you wanted to look like. You could change genders and you would pop into this world and that was it. And you'd kind of wander around and chat by typing on your keyboard. You could hit the space bar and fly, you know, but there wasn't really a structured behavior system like you find in many games today. So in a conversation with Philip Rosedale, probably around 2000, 2001, two, I forget the exact year. I said, hey, you know, we should create an economy. And I became Alan Greenspan Gollum in Second Life. And if you don't know the name Alan Greenspan, he was the chairman of the Fed in the 1990s. So kind of the Jerome Powell person, but you know, from, I forget when he started, he was after Paul Volcker, uh, but he was kind of the guy in the late 90s. And so are I you alluding out. to rate hikes right now, Bill? What's that? Are you yeah. alluding to rate hikes right now, Bill? <laughs> oh, <laughs> they're talking about it today. I'm sure. Just today. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah, but so the Linden dollar was born and it was fascinating to see the behavior in Second Life because all of the things mm-hmm. that happened in real life in the U.S. banking system in the 1800s. So people setting up uncharted banks and creating Ponzi schemes and conducting commerce, all that stuff happened. So when the Bitcoin white paper came out six, five, six years later, um, it was sent to me. And then I kind of, you know, I read it, looked at the, the site, downloaded some of the software in 2010, and away we went. And that was my, and I, I did tweet about it in 2010. Um, I think there's a, there, uh, there's a tweet I'll send you later that, that was something like uh, anyone using Bitcoin.org, it has fascinating potential because I I, I could mm-hmm. see it. I mean, it was like I uh, it lit my head was on fire that day, and I remember having a discussion with Philip Rosedale. Um, we had an email exchange in 2010 where I was like, "Hey, this could be the solution. We we should you know we should swap out the Linden dollar for Bitcoin and make this the currency." And uh, nothing you know that didn't transpire, of course, but. That led to me funding the silicon for Bitfury um, a year later that ended up becoming one of the early mining giants and then exposure to really everything that's happened since. Uh, I'm, I mean, you've been incredibly early into crypto, into other things like Zoom, 
uh, and Dapper Labs. One of the things that crypto is sort of a new paradigm because it is sort of like liquid venture. Um, it allows, if you're investing in something like Ethereum or Bitcoin, well, you can sell very easily. Um, and I think the hardest thing that I've found as an investor in this space is you're sort of expected to be a venture capitalist, but also can be a high frequency trader. Um, and how do you manage your thesis and also juxtaposing that with you can see incredible adoption and narratives get ahead of fundamentals and what you, might be your prediction that things will evolve in 20 or 50 years time or 20 years time happens in a span of six months. And look, I mean, I understand, you know, capital is moving at the speed of information. You're connecting the world. Uh, you're using the distribution of the internet to also move money uh, in a way that hasn't been possible before. And you remove a lot of friction. So you combine all that and, you know, I guess we shouldn't be surprised in many ways that explosive things happen. But it is hard, right, when you see something that is moving non-linearly and managing that as an investor and managing that risk in, in your portfolio. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious how, how you've managed to navigate the space because we've seen multiple cycles. Perhaps even this year, we've seen three cycles. There's a lot of volatility in the space. And I think a lot of our viewers um, would love to hear how you uh, have managed you know, even investing in Zoom and Zoom took off really through COVID in a very explosive way. So it's not inherent to crypto, but I think crypto expresses that sort of on steroids. Well, yeah, I actually think, you know, Zoom, Zoom's been a fun one because I think it's uh, the whole world lives on Zoom. And I think the crypto industry, as we know it, in my opinion, my humble individual opinion, it might not exist the way it exists today if Zoom had not been in place. Right. I think there could have, you know, people could have used other video conferencing systems and things like that. But I think the natural philosophy of the crypto industry towards decentralization and distributed teams and, you know, great independence and work from anywhere, it's sort of like Zoom was born to empower the crypto industry. It wasn't actually designed for that. But, you know, I think the whole wave was built in a way on Zoom. And, uh, and what I've learned over time is that uh, it's, I, I like to be at the early stage. So, so investing in a, in a world where there's a lot, a, a lot of dynamic change, you can kind of look at you know, the ocean of capital out there like an ocean. You have a rising tide that kind of you know, rising or falling tide, which is kind of a little bit like interest rates. You have waves moving over that that are foundational things that are either happening or not of different size. And the question is, you know, where do you place yourself in that? Because you cannot do everything, right? And, uh, and there's a lot, there's a, there, there's a tendency for everybody to get pulled towards what I'd call quick money. You know, the bright, shiny object and the fascination with, you know, uh, things that are happening that you didn't see in the FOMO of, oh my God, did you see how much capital accrued to that in that short a period? And you know what? I think you got to kind of ignore that. Well, I mean, everybody can, everybody's different. They're wired differently. I have found that when I try to chase things and play with bright, shiny objects and try to make a, a career of timing things, just like pure timing, that's labor intensive and really hard. And the only way you can, uh, you know, have a big hit there is by placing a lot at risk in that churning water. And that's pretty hard. 
you know, and it's hard to do durably. So I spend most of my time looking at what do I think the foundational changes are that are coming and how do I work with with uh, teams at the start of those foundational changes? And and to me, there's a misperception of the risk of early stage startups. A lot of people are scared to death to fund the one or two or three person teams with an idea thinking, oh, my God, like there's nothing there. And it's like so hard. And it's like, you know, it's it's weak. It's you know, it's, it could die at any moment. And that, that may be true. But um I find that to be the safest place of the system to be for me because the the teams are manageable. They're typically very committed, at least the ones that I'll work with. The burn rates are really low. And if you can gather enough confidence and people and capital um, that isn't a lot, you can keep those projects alive for years in the face of anything happening in the ocean. But if you try to fund something that got to a big burn rate on a lot of momentum that doesn't quite have the revenue traction to sustain, then you're looking at this like, you know, freight train going around corners down a mountain where you're trying to keep the people motivated when people are really just not sure. And you have to keep feeding the elephant and raising ever a larger amounts of money to keep it alive. You know, so, yeah, yeah so uh, I always go to the early stage, foundational with good people and good backers and hang around trying to get in the vortex of information. That, that for me is the safest place. Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and I'm honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for Avalanche integrations. Number two, new projects. These are not just NFT clones, AMM knockoffs, and lending protocols. These are new projects, NFT projects, play to earn games, really, really interesting stuff happening in the Avalanche ecosystem. And number three, Binance just re-enabled C-Chain integration. What in the world does this mean? This means that you, the user, can directly withdraw to your MetaMask, which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche, for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight. You would never go directly to an airline, right? You'd never go directly to United or Delta. You'd obviously go to Google Flights or Expedia or Kayak or Booking.com. That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier. It makes it faster. It makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH, Polygon, as you can see here, BSC. They recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago. Pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io, 
Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in, let's say I want to swap you know, 0.2 ETH for USDT. You can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to Paraswap, P-A-R-A-S-W-A-P dot I-O to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show. What is your vortex of information? Is that your network of founders, friends that you met over time, online communities, Reddit? Um, I am curious how, how you get inspiration uh, and have found uh, incredible opportunities. Yeah, there's a, it's all of those, but it's sort of a staging of those. And I'll separate crypto from other things like, you know, the Zoom thing. Zoom is interesting in that it was one of these situations where everybody assumed the market was fully baked, very mature, and there was no entry point. And, uh, you know, video conferencing had been around for decades. Um, the most common feedback I would get when I would try to get other people to fund it with me is, you're nuts. Microsoft, you're going to compete with Microsoft and Google that have, you know, tens of billions or hundreds of billions of cash and their product is free. Is that even logic? Like why, why would anyone do that? And, and how many video conferencing things are downloaded on phones already to this? Anybody really want another one? You know, and yeah, it sounded crazy, but what did I, what I saw was a structural change in the technology in the market to be enabled by two things. One cloud infrastructure and a move to uh, mobile devices. So those two things in combination provided an opportunity to really remake the way video was transported at a cost structure that was a, a 10,000 more times scalable and maybe a thousand less X less cost. And if you could provide those kinds of performance metrics, it's possible. I find that, um, these sort of these sequential waves of innovation, if we were sort of reference like Carlota Perez book, uh, are, are compressing and the time that it takes to displace incumbents is much, much faster. Um, and, and I think it's exponential in this sort of open source world of crypto where information is just, you know, anyone can copy your code. And, and I am curious, um, if you believe that to be true, um, what are the moats, um, in crypto networks? Um, you know, obviously zoom, as a platform uh, is now used by schools, by governments. It's sort of like the de facto, the preferred method of video conferencing. It's not to say that it can't be displaced, but at least that's the state of the world we're in. And it doesn't feel to me that even though I invest a lot in Ethereum, to your point, there's most of the developers here. Um, there are other competing chains um, and it feels like we're early. And so I, I'm curious how you think about moats for, for crypto networks Um which seem to me are quite different than traditional startups. Well, it's the two it's the two layers we talked about before, which is kind of, you know, at the base layer, the accounting layer, economies of scale on a cost structure. And uh, I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more later. And then also the usability um, with a variety of applications for stickiness or value transfer that is happening at such a, a volume that you don't want to move, right? So, and Zoom is actually... It's not, it's the same, the same principles apply everywhere. So Zoom, um, what is their moat? Because uh, it would appear that, well, they popped in and replaced everybody. Why can't somebody else? So now because of cloud infrastructure, it's a question of economies of scale, right? So Zoom has built out such deep infrastructure in so many countries 
the data center infrastructure to move stuff around is pretty heavy uh, in, you know, not heavy to, uh, it's, well, it's expensive for one, but if you want to route a call from any point to anywhere else in the globe, they have that laid out. And a new entrant now would have to go around and cut all those contracts and build all that stuff at very, very high volume uh, chunks to purchase to allow marginally free or low cost that the capital required to replicate that is going to be insane right now. So it would be hard to do it the same way um, and be competitive without raising billions and billions and billions of dollars and lighting up the whole thing at once. A little bit like semiconductor fabs now too. Um, at the application layer, um, whether it's a blockchain or Zoom itself, Zoom now has the Zoom, a set of Zoom APIs and the Zoom App Store, where like the iOS App Store or the Apple App Store, the more people that add value to the front end to embed things, you know, the iOS capabilities or Zoom's case, Zoom's video transport and video, uh, you know, audio transport, the stickier it gets because you start to move more and more to the edges uh, to be close to the application of what people want to do in various, you know, slivers of uh, vertical variants. And I think there's a natural um, marketplace effect where, you know, if you go back to like basic principles around stock markets, there used to be in America many separate regional physical stock exchanges. There was a, the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, the Pacific Stock Exchange, that there were there were the New York Stock Exchange, like many, many places where you could trade a share of IBM, for example, or whatever that stock would be. Um, and it might have different prices depending on the liquidity per place, just like you see today if you're going to buy a crypto thing on Binance or BitMEX or Bittrex that are like slightly different. But eventually what happened was... Um, the marginal buyer or seller wants the best price. If you're selling, you want the best bids. If you're buying, you want the best offers. And the more of them that show up in one place, the higher the likelihood is that you'll be able to get the best price and the highest volume on your execution. So marketplaces over time tend to aggregate to a single place per security. And so I think we're, we're kind of in that phase now where I think the applications density of things have natural gravitas, you know, so even if Dapper opened up the NBA top shot moments to be traded on multiple chains, the likelihood if you've been buying and selling on full blockchain, the likelihood that you stay there is like almost a hundred percent, you know, you, why would you migrate off? Right. So, so I think uh, it's a function of, of uh, getting the users and driving uh, or up enabling the users to drive themselves to an exponential sort of like high volume, low friction, lots of transactions uh, state. Uh, B Bill, I actually found this. Uh, I found this funny tweet that we'll include include in the show notes, which is uh, you sharing some emails uh, about pitching VCs about Zoom uh, back in the early days. And there's uh, one thing you're like, I think at a 10 million post money, this seems reasonable. Uh, so yeah, you think. Um, so we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. I also found that, that Bitcoin tweet from 2020, uh, 2010, but anyways, this ties into, uh, the next question, which is you've been, you've had a really, you've done a really good job over your career of just kind of seeing the future, right? I don't know a better way to put it than that, right? You're early to the internet. You're early to things like zoom. You're tweeting about Bitcoin in 2010. You're investing in NFTs when everyone thought NFTs were dead because they clogged the entire blockchain. What, 
feels obvious to you right now inside of crypto that you still think others are completely missing. Like take take Santiago and I into the future. Like take us into 2025, into 2030. What does this look like? What feels obvious to you? Okay, so two mega mega they're not trends, mega descriptions, kind of very like big picture descriptions. One is that um, as I think about the movement of uh, the efficiency of moving things around. So while I talked about five ways of kind of investability, I think there's three foundational layers. One is more efficient moving of electrons, more efficient moving of bits, more efficient moving of assets, right? So we're, we're now basically building the TCP IP of assets. And I'm sure many people have heard that many times, but you know, if you think about all the things that were empowered by a low friction way to organize the world's information with with the Internet, we are now in that phase of organizing the world's assets. Right. So it, while a book page or a book itself, libraries could be turned into web pages with an identifier to put them into a broadcast marketplace. So you so Google organized the world's information. Every asset pretty much can have a record locator a URL, kind of, so to speak, on the blockchain and exposed to an internet of assets, whether it's one main one or a bunch of smaller ones overlaying that one main one. So the value creation potential of where we are today is is mind-blowing. I think, you know, we all had our minds blown when the, the internet happened and the valuations that occurred there that ended up over time being gargantuan. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about two to three orders of magnitude, a hundred to a thousand X or more opportunity than just the information itself. The asset value transacting, we're just scratching the surface. So I, I'm blown away by by what might happen in terms of value creation and market value creation around marketplaces and and metaverses, which you know, marketplace is kind of a metaverse of people trading one thing, you know, and we're uh, a certain flavor of things. So, so, and then I think another big picture thing that I think about is the structure of society. Okay, so now this is kind of like a little bit uh, academic, but. If you think about the period that we've been in for the last one and a half to three and a half generations of centralization of economies, it's actually an aberration across the spectrum of human history. And if you think about what people were like before machinery and oil, that quote, you know, physical industrial revolution, people were quite uh, peer to peer and um, had a lot of flexibility and freedom in what they did every day, right? So you might, you know, your job as a caveman was to go five friends and go hunt, you know, one thing for a little while and then go farm with some other people and then go, you know, do something else with some other people. And you didn't have like one company that stuck you on an assembly line, screwing one screw a, a million times a day and measuring your productivity. You were very flexible and your work was kind of fluid and inspiration based. But once capital equipment and oil and machines dominated marginal productivity, the world ossified where he who controlled capital 
controlled the people and made them little like monkeys in a box that denuded themselves and could, couldn't only do one thing because they forgot how to do everything else. And the, the capital accumulation was so large in this small, short period for a few companies, there were promises of, you know, lifelong pensions and all kinds of things that if you stayed there for your life, you'd get taken care of after you retired till you died. And guess what? That was all fake because all those companies are going bankrupt now. Or their pension liabilities are larger than their what they owe because people are living longer for whatever reasons, right? So, so I think we went through this like false period in a longer term sense where the oil-based centralized economy was so concentrated that we forgot what humanity really looked like. And now because software is deconstructing everything, we're all in a giant peer-to-peer network now on Zoom and on Facebook groups or whatever Discord group you're on where you can connect to your tribe of any particular thing at any time of day with multiple tribes. You know, And so, so now we're kind of flattening everything which calls for a very different type of, of economic model, governance structures, and capital economy. You know, so I think, I think what, we're, what we're seeing now is the breakdown of uh, centralized societies and governments. Um, hopefully there's not total chaos in that breakdown because it could trend that way. But I think we're now moving towards a world of multiple tribes that were you i mean any individual can be a member of multiple different tribes at any one time throughout the day and work on what you want to work on when you're inspired to work on it right and and i'd say like you know the people on this call here if you go and look at any of your acquaintances that are kind of you know 22 25 and under i'll bet that 90 percent of them are not working for just one company you know, where all of our parents and grandparents, their dream was to go work for the one company for the rest of their life, mm-hmm. right? So so we're going back to what humans used to be for 400,000 years, except for the last 150. Mm-hmm. I didn't answer your question on what to invest in, but but I think that mm-hmm. we're still- that's, that's fascinating. Though. I mean, I've heard you talk about Renato Soto and property rights and, and how that's so important to economic development. And it feels like blockchains are that immutable record that frees allows for a just a, a detonation of economic activity um on the internet and so my when i first discovered bitcoin i said this is fascinating i said a game theory and then i said well, wait a minute this is sort of the ch- separation of money and state and that might not go down as easily um the same with it the separation of church and state um and back when you know the reformation and so i am curious um just to follow this thread, um, how does this actually play out? And and how you know, we talk about regulation, we talk about governments changing their stance first, super against Bitcoin, then then have no other choice and saying, look, this is this is you, you can't shut it down. This is how things are going to work. What does society look like in the next you know ten years? And and what is the role of government in that? Do do governments as we know them today? cease to exist are, are they just sort of more like corporations that are kept in check because you have an unsovereign store value you know uh it, it is very topical because regulation keeps coming up as sort of a hindrance to the space yeah this is a, so this is the this is the key question what how do people use this 
technology or be part of this technology in a world of potentially, you know, deep trusted disinformation um, to try to control things or not, right? Because there's this constant battle of centralization versus decentralization. And I think what's happening now is there's an incredible amount of economic empowerment that is happening at kind of the fringe edge layer of our societal structure for the young people that, you know, mostly young people that, that we've been talking about, where the definition of money has really changed. You know, so, so I think uh, if you think about money over the last, um, you know, couple, like maybe 50, actually the last hundred years is, is the period that's kind of very different and very relevant. Pre the dominance of the period we talked about of capital, technology, bombs, physical things, people were pretty tribal. Right. Like, you know, uh, even in the period where, you know, pilgrims got off the boat and stepped on the shores of America, every colony would create their own currency based on the trust of that religious group or community set. And people would use pebbles or shells or feathers or whatever to represent any kind of currency. And uh, depending on, you know, which society it was. And when things got centralized, uh, military might was also centralized. And there was a lot of warring around, you know, if you think about what happened in World War One and Two with mechanized warfare, wow, that was, you know, both destructive and it added a lot of debt in this world that couldn't be resolved. So the system blew up, just literally just melted down. And so the modern day currency system that we all live with here is kind of a result of that. So, so picture the end of World War Two where all of the world's major currents, all the world's major economies had been destroyed, except the USA and Sweden that sat it out, right? And so, and Switzerland that sat it out. So you had tens and tens, hundreds of millions of people with pieces of paper with Hitler's face or Mussolini's face or these faces that didn't exist anymore. What do you do with that, right? So the world had to restore order by giving trust to a trust, a non-trusted system and referencing it off of something people felt comfortable with, which, which was gold, right? So they called Bretton Woods, all the leaders of the surviving countries and the new leaders of the other ones pop in and they say, okay, well, guess what? We're going to say that there's, you know, $32 per ounce of gold. And we're going to say like there's like X francs per dollar and X this, you know, marks per dollar and X lira per dollar. And we'll print a bunch of them and kind of, you know, helicopters didn't exist if you know them. But then we'll helicopter money, all this stuff, stuff around, drop it. Gentlemen, start your engines, new economy. So, so it was all based on this physical asset for a bit. And then, of course, that system broke because we shifted to the petrodollar, right? Because countries that needed to preserve their futures, their marginal productivity, you could either do that by buying a lot of oil and storing it so you could run your machines or buy the proxy for that oil, which is the dollar. So the dollar is kind of the original ICO of with backed by oil barrels, right? And so, so now we're moving completely into a new era where the marginal productivity is no longer oil-based, it's electron-based. Right. So if you if you had to give up your phone or access to oil, you know, you'd give up the oil 
because everything you do, all modern productivity is coming from software making assets and the movement of assets more efficient. So the definition of money is changing. And because you can encapsulate anything digitally, I think you're going to have all kinds of different currencies, right? So think about what is a loyalty points program? Starbucks. I don't know how many million people carry around a Starbucks card or a digital Starbucks card, but it's a lot. It's millions and millions. And the stored value on that, that's no different than a, you know, a token of something. It's just a digital thing. It just happens to be on a centralized database controlled by Starbucks, not peer-to-peer. And guess what? Starbucks is its own Jerome Powell. If they, they probably have somebody in there that could literally print a bunch of these cards and give them away if they wanted to, and it's as good as money. You know, so every single brand, which is a community of interest, can have and maybe already has its own monetary system. And they're backed not by gold or by oil, but by shoes or by cups of coffee or by meals in restaurants. It, it's crazy. So, so the plethora of things that people can use to transact now, we've obviously seen an exploding just in our little world of cryptocurrencies, but all of these other things represent stuff. And the things backing them now can move from physical to abstract. So one of the projects that I'm, I, I love and I'm having a lot of fun with is a company called Metagood. So if you think there's currencies backed by things or cups of coffee or bars of gold or whatever, there's a different kind of currency that we all live with, which is kind of social currency. Doing good things for other people, you store value with that person. And then they're willing to do good, do good things for you. So why can't you tokenize good karma? You know, so so I think this project MetaGood, we're basically, we've built this wonderful community of believers that um, sit in the, so you, you kind of are part of the community by joining the Discord. You can delve even deeper by buying one of the NFTs, which is called an on-chain monkey. And if you are in the Discord group, every eight hours, you can earn some universal basic income, universal basic bananas. You're granted a bunch of you know bananas by typing in the word rise, which are, is our value set in respect, integrity, sustainability, experimentation. You get these bananas, but conceptually bananas, they, they rot. So you got to give them away. So people that do good things that are good community members accrue bananas given to them by other people. So they're sort of like a Really good people get a lot of currency and then they can spend that currency. So you have this accretive ball of energy where people know that by doing good things for other people, they make more. And so rather than kind of, you know, play to earn, this is sort of like do good things to earn. And, uh, and we'll see how it goes. But I'd, I'd love to see a type of currency that is aligning interests of people that want to see good things done and actually do them themselves to make them happen and to have that be a, a way to store value and to to produce an economy of of good karma bill i'm, I'm going to try to tie back like three different thoughts here one thing from the beginning of the conversation like the virtualization of financial assets and decreasing friction increases gdp but then also santiago's thought about government and like what is the role of government it just strikes me that uh the, the, like, there's absolutely no way to measure all of these different, like metaverse, metaversal type assets in GDP, right? Like even, even crypto side, right? Like Roblox, like how do you, how do you measure all of the transactions happening inside of Roblox? Roblox, obviously Roblox is clipping fees, but like all of those, 
or like Fortnite bucks or like, you know, everything that will end up happening on uh, like Sandbox and Decentraland. Like there's no possible way for the government to uh, account for that in GDP in the same way that like our 1930s, 1940s security laws have the regulators are running around like chickens with their head cut off trying to figure out how to regulate crypto. So I don't know. It's it's quite interesting. I'm, But I think my question here, what is the question here? I, th- I think it's do some of these institutions and like legacy, like rules and frameworks have to fall apart for the new wave to succeed? Like does the current, does the dollar have to fall apart? Does, do the JP Morgans and Goldman Sachs have to fall for something to rise? Like does Facebook have to fall for the next metaverse to rise? Like what, what is your thought on, on just institutions failing in order for the next thing to come up? I think it's a question of the culture of the institutions, whether they are governments or companies and their ability to learn and evolve. And, you know, you take a a company like Microsoft, mind blowing or or Apple even. Right. You know, so so there were periods where both of those companies looked like they were stale and maybe not to be dead, but to, to kind of, you know, fall a little bit by the wayside. But they both continue to just evolve and grow along with the times and, you know, move from, in Microsoft's case, non-cloud to cloud, you know, and to, uh, and in Apple's case, to completely reinvent itself in terms of platform and ecosystem and things like that. And, and I think the great thing about democracy, if we hold our values and execute democracy correctly, is that democracy should be uh, an ongoing learning institution that services its people because the people express their views and vote the leaders in. And, uh, you know, obviously the last three, four years pre, pre-Biden, you know, shook some people's confidence in our ability to do that. And a lot's getting uncovered in these, uh, in this, you know, January 6th committee about, you know, real attempts to basically turn it into totalitarian dictatorship and, you know, maybe declare, you know, what a military emergency to, to declare the election invalid. Like, oh my God, what country do we live in? You know, but, but uh, I think as we, as we go forward, I think there's going there. It, it is very clear that the economy is shifting. Like even as a venture capitalist, I, I, I think we look, I look no longer just at investing in products. I'll still invest in some products, but Usually they are community based that have a little bit of an open source like DevOps flavor to them if they're technology software or I'm investing in things that might create a virtual nation. And I wouldn't might not call it a nation in the same way that we call these, you know, our government of nation states, but but mm-hmm. investing in micro economies like Roblox, as you noted, it's kind of its own economy and Fortnite, it's its own economy. Right. So so I think mm-hmm. there's a way now to drive value accrual that isn't just like replicating the same thing in hardware software over and over and over again, but it's by inciting economic activity that creates a little GDP. And this GDP counting is fascinating, right? So so that trend line is also pretty clear too. Like, you know, you, I think governments, they do a couple of things that they're they're really trying to, to provide uh, a, you know, social order to allow productivity to happen. And the tools for economic empowerment, so that the you know the economy can keep growing and service its people. And uh, if you think about the the shift of where the brain power is going to create economic activity, aside from crypto, think about you know if you took the total number of people 
the bright minds at you know Microsoft, Google, Facebook, all these companies, how many of them sit in front of a screen all day moving ones and zeros around? It's a lot, mm-hmm. right? So, so a lot of our GDP, the marginal productivity of our economy is not necessarily coming just from making stuff. It might be making it more efficiently because of software, but there's a lot of people that basically just are kept busy moving ones and zeros around and, and in some companies making products that never see the light of day, like, you know, Google, how many people mm-hmm. are working on stuff that pop up and then, you know, like, but they mm-hmm. spend their time and they're, they're productive, you know? So, so I think, uh, yeah. As we look at these little metaverses, as long as you're keeping people busy, you know, I think this is what China spends its time doing looking backwards the last 40 or 50 years. It's kind of like, oh, my God, there's all these bodies. How do we keep them from milling about and revolting? Social order. Got to keep them busy. Go build that city that we hope people will live in someday if they don't. But oh, build another one. You know, it's kind of like you see these these diagrams from, you know, post-World War II of like, take a shovel dig a hole over there, then fill it up with the hole from that hole and just keep going back and forth. As long as you're doing that, we'll pay you, you know? And so, so as long as people are busy and not looking to revolt and can make a little bit of quote currency, then everything's good. Right. And as long as you keep evolving that, that's good. So now you've got this whole generation of people. I think there's a lot of people like the great resignation that you hear about where all these people have left their jobs. You know, I don't know how much of that is due to younger people or even or older people or whoever just, you know, buying a bunch of AMC and, G- and GME on Robinhood. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure there have been people that quit their jobs because they're like, hey, I could just do this all day. And it's better than mm-hmm. showing up flipping burgers at this other place. Take the gov- uh, the, the COVID stimulus check, right? Put it right into crypto yes. and you've had a pretty good last 18 months. Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, that, yeah, it's all changing. We spent a lot of the time talking about crypto and Bitcoin and ETH and all these other layer ones and have learned about your uh, your on-chain monkeys and the bananas, which I need to start uh, generating, jump in the Discord. Uh, I think my last question for you is just what what are you really fascinated by and what are you looking at and what are you investing in outside of crypto right now that has you that has you intrigued? A lot of things in the developer ecosystem, you know, so so because I am a believer that the vast majority of marginal productivity for our economies today is going to come from continuing development of software. Things that fuel that are going to be in the right spot. So um, I've got a project uh, called Archipelo that I seeded with uh, Andy Bechtelsheim, who was the first 100K check into Google, and Eric Yuan from Zoom also seeded with me. Archipelo uh, they're basically a search engine that will categorize all of that open source software stuff on all of the various repositories over time. So in a world where um, you think about software development as it used to be writing code line by line by line, now what do you do? You go out to repositories and it's permission plagiarism. You take this, you take that, you swap out the variables, you mix them up, and then you, you remix. Just like music is getting remixed and content's getting remixed, software is getting remixed, right? So the accumulation of all of that stuff out there is kind of like walking into a dimly lit football field-sized warehouses with boxes of gears and pumps and wires and stuff that you're not actually sure what it is. But if all that stuff got labeled, 
And you could say, give me one of those, give me one of those, put the bolts fit, you know, boom, 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 boom. Then there's a great acceleration possible. So that that's what Archipelago is striving to do. Not an easy problem, but I think if they can do that, it's game changing. Um, I'm working with another team that is working on data observability. This is a company called Calyptia. And uh, in a company I co-founded as chairman called Treasure Data, we built a data science infrastructure, a Hadoop cloud, that was a platform for people to write uh, uh, applications and other things on that needed, you know, kind of deep data science. We had a team that open sourced a technology called Fluent D and Fluent Bit, which is uh, like we were describing earlier, the ability to move data format across different networks and things. They're one layer higher than that, where whether it's SQL or Excel or Tableau or whatever Snowflake, there's people that have needed to move data from one format to another before you. So uh, the fluent bit layer is this like layer where you could put an in and an out and it will reformat anything to anything. So they've released a platform that allows for what they call first mile observability. So in the data flow of anything you're building, the logging infrastructure to see what's happening, you can you can see it and know what it means uh, as opposed to just capturing voluminous data that you have to look at later. It's kind of a near real time implementation for DevOps. So so I think uh, those kinds of things are, are exciting to me. I think there's uh, some applicability of the, there's a lot of applicability of real world uh, things enabled by the types of behavior we see in the metaverse. So I'm um, funding a company called Calip, uh, sorry, Liven, uh, Liven.love in Australia. And they've basically taken the behaviors that you see in uh, exchangeability of digital currency uh, per brand to allow any host, uh, any, any restaurant to be its own Jerome Powell. So you can basically, from the customers that love you, issue tokens to them that are redeemable for your food. So if you need to buy a new gigantic refrigerator or a new oven or furniture for your restaurant, you issue, you collect the capital, build out, and then you basically pay it back by people, buy, you know, redeeming for food. You know, so it's, it's kind of, you know, metaverse in real life. Um, I'm quite interested also in changes in uh, kind of microbiome and uh, things that have to do with kind of, you know, molecular science in genetics. So, uh, color genomics, I'm the first outside investor yep. in that company and, uh, and a company called microgen that is engineering through microbiome, um, solutions where you can dip the plant seeds in, plant them. And then as the root systems grow, the bacteria grows with it and it filters out cadmium and heavy metals to make our food supply safer. So those are those are kind of a sampling of the things I look at now. Bill, I've been fascinated uh, by a lot of what you said, one of which really struck me, which is a passion of mine, which is I want to sequence the microbiome. And I think it will take I think we're ready for it. And I think we'll unlock a lot of medical mysteries because the microbiome is the place where you absorb the most amount of nutrients. And it's shocking the little funding that some of the top researchers in the microbiome sphere are getting. So maybe we'll take this offline, but it is something that I tweeted about a while ago and I've been fascinated by. Um, it's crazy how some of the best minds outside of crypto don't get the proper funding. And so maybe DAOs are a solution to that, to coordinate capital with human t 
talent in an atomic way. I, I love that thought. Yeah, DAOs are are fundamental to I think the future. And you know, you kind of see earlier versions. They're not DAOs, but they have some of the behavior of that. Like whether it's kick starter or kick further. You know, and a kick further is one that you should look at too. It's uh, it's not just give me money for my idea. Maybe someday I'll launch a product and not screw you. In this case, it's I've been shipping products. I have POs. I'll provide a personal guarantee. I need the money for the inventory build prepay. You can take some of it if you want it or just wait for me to sell it and I'll pay you back with interest. And the the rate of return on those campaigns is very high. <laughs> it's it's really good because you know you're you're basically borrowing in uh, at kind of uh, paying back in, at retail after you've sold stuff, but purchasing the goods at wholesale because they're raw materials, right? So the the amplification of capital that's where the flame, like the source of the flame of value creation, is. So the the currency with which to pay back is always there, so long as the goods sell. I've been following these on Twitter as you drop them. So we'll drop in the show notes. And it's funny because it's funny because all of these, at least my network maybe is not as good, but it's only followed by Bill Tye, which means you're the only person in, in that I follow that follows these. And they have like less than 10,000 followers. So Bill, yet again, alpha. yet That's again, alpha this yeah, is in real time. Early. You've proven <laughs> that you are early adopter in so many of these. And it yeah. is fascinating to see that. You know, my 2010 tweet on Bitcoin, I was looking for other people to, to transact with. And it was like I was shouting into outer space. I don't think I got a reply on that thing for weeks. You know, it, it, it didn't it didn't get lit up until like every Paul found it years later and said this tweet aged well. And all of a sudden it got a bunch of likes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Bill, this has been fascinating to hear your story. Um a lot going on in your brain and we thank you for sharing that with us with the audience and and it's incredible so keep up the good work and and and, and we'll definitely check out these startups <laughs> thank you look forward yeah. to you yeah thank you bill take care thank you so much bill take care everybody bye-bye